Well, good morning, Genesis. My name is Michael. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here and want to say thanks uh, for coming and be with us today. If you've been coming to Genesis for a while, meaning more than a few months, uh, we're thankful that you're here and uh, growing and being part of the community. And if you're maybe new today or new-ish uh, over the past uh, few months in the summer, I hope that you're beginning to uh, learn a little bit more and get connected. Our heart as a church is we just want to help all people walk with God. And all people literally means all people. And so all, if you're trying to figure out who God is and what God is like and how to even know God, have friendship, relationship, uh, you're in a good place because we want to help and encourage you in the questions that you're asking. And if you've already begun a relationship with God, well, you're in a good place too because we want to help you continue to grow in that relationship. So uh, we do this together. Uh, we're not about Lone Ranger stuff. We're not about just going by ourselves and kind of the solo thing. Uh, we are always going to invite all of you, all of us, to be part of community. And so if you want to learn a little bit more about how to take a step towards kind of the relational factor here at Genesis, uh, I invite you to step into uh, the living room after service is over. Some friends and some folks from our leadership team are there specifically just to answer any questions you might have and just point you in the direction of uh, beginning the relational connection here. Uh, a true confession that I wanted to begin with today is that I'm a highly, highly, slightly annoying competitive person. That is to say, if you challenge me to do something within reason, it is a good chance that I will actually take you up on your challenge. Uh, as long as I can remember, even from like a really young little kid, I have always been a very uber, uber competitive person. And there's been seasons in my life where being competitive has served me well, but there's also been seasons in my life where being competitive, well, I've just bitten off a little bit more than I can chew. Uh, I was a swimmer. Uh, growing up, my entire life, family of swimmers, uh, swam competitively all the way through college. And I remember in high school, my, uh, my uh, event, I was a sprinter. Uh, so 50 freestyle, 100 freestyle uh, were my two main events. And if you're not familiar with sprinters, uh, sprinters are notorious trash talkers. And so I would consistently be getting on our long distance swimmers saying things like, hey, if you actually knew how to swim fast, you wouldn't have to swim so far. And so I would always be annoying and just kind of, you know, poking them a little bit about how slow they were. And so at the end of my senior year, uh, we're traveling to uh, U.S. Nationals, which that year was in Orlando, Florida. And my coach and my uh, long distance friends were thoroughly annoyed and sick of me rousing them about uh, how slow they were and all that kind of stuff. And they said, Michael, we want to challenge you that after Nationals is over, we're flying down to Fort Lauderdale uh, to compete in the open water uh, 15K National Championship. We want to challenge you to do that with us. And I was like, heck yeah. I had no idea how far 15K was in open water, but I was like, absolutely, I will totally do that. So I show up the morning of the race and I just had discovered that 15K is just shy of 10 miles in the open water and was thoroughly scared. But I obviously could not let them know that I was freaking out. And keep in mind, my longest race was 45 seconds long. So the thought of being in the ocean for 10 miles freaked me out. Now, if you've never seen an open water race before, each swimmer has someone who's assigned to them in a canoe or a kayak just to make sure that you don't get lost and don't get drowned or attacked by any animals in the sea. Uh, my coach uh, said, Michael, I'm going to go with you. And he actually had swimmers, uh, our long distance was some of the best in the country, that were competing for like top five positions. 
but he was concerned that I was going to die, and so he thought it would be best to stick with me. Now, the race was going pretty well. We get to a little bit past the halfway mark, uh, and things went pretty bad. And when I say they were going good, I just hadn't died yet, but a little past the halfway mark, uh, I swam myself into a dead end. Now, open water competition and courses, they had us in Lauderdale at the time swimming through uh, some of the channels, but then they'd bring you back into the ocean. Now, we're not sure how this actually happened, but we lost track of where we actually were on the course, and I ended up swimming about 1,000 yards uh, off course, and I only knew I did that because I literally swam myself into a dead end. Now, I can't tell you this morning uh, publicly what words flew out of my mouth towards my coach that uh, afternoon, but I was so angry and so frustrated that I literally swam into a dead end. So I was a thousand yards off course, but now I had to swim a thousand yards back in the same direction just to get back on course. Now, I, I survived, just so you know, I'm still alive. Uh, it took me about nine hours to complete. That was three hours after everyone had finished the race. But I was still able to tell my long-distance friends, hey, I at least finish, I didn't die. But I'll never forget the dead end. Now, it's safe to say, at some level, all of us here have experienced at some point the frustration of finding yourself in a dead end. We use that term, obviously, for uh, geographical or if your GPS leads you into a dead end, but we also use that language of dead end to describe things like, this job I'm in is a dead end job. This relationship that I'm in right now is a dead end relationship. Or this dream that I've always had has just reached a dead end. We use that language of dead end to just communicate that you know, there's nothing else to be done. We've reached a place that we can no longer see a path and moving forward. And what typically happens is when we hit that dead end, we begin to complain and we begin to blame. We begin to complain about where we are and we begin looking for people, whether it might be God or just people in our lives, to blame them for what's happening in our life or maybe what's actually not happening in our life. So dead ends, they're frustrating at many levels. But I want to ask the question this morning is, what happens when the dead end is a spiritual one? Specifically thinking, if you've done everything that you know to follow God, you've gone where God told you to go, you've done everything that God has said for you to do, and it actually ended you up in a dead end. See, it's one thing to swim yourself into a dead end for lack of just paying attention, but what happens when you're actually paying attention? You're paying attention to what God wants, His directions in your life, and you find yourself in a dead end. Now, I've been thinking uh, this past week a lot about dead ends because the story that we are in this morning in Exodus 14 is probably the most well-known, most recognized story in the entire Old Testament. It's the story of the parting of the Red Sea. And what happens at the very beginning of this story is it actually begins with a dead end. So as I've been thinking about this story afresh this week, namely the beginning of the story, one of the things that I wrote in my journal this week was this, dead ends display the glory of God. That our dead ends, our perceived dead ends, actually are an opportunity for God to display His glory. 
As we've been walking through Exodus' uh, story now for many, many months, we've seen time and time again that God is most concerned about His glory, and meaning everything that God does is so that we would know that He alone is God. So as we're walking through this story uh, this morning together, there's four words that I want to draw our attention to, and hopefully four words that we'll be able to remember uh, from Exodus 14 that will help us remember this truth that dead ends display who God is and what God is like. They display His glory. So this is the beginning of most recognized story in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses, order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Phi-Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Baal-Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think, the Israelites, they're confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites camped there as they were told. If you were here last week, Kyle did a great job walking us through Exodus 13, specifically helping us see that God often uses the long road in our lives to accomplish His plans and His purpose. But as we see in these few verses, sometimes that long road actually entails pulling a U-turn that leads us straight into a dead end. Again, in verse 2, order the Israelites to turn back, camp there along the shore across from Baal-Zephon. Now, if you were to look at an ancient map, you would see that Baal-Zephon formed a perfect geographical cul-de-sac, meaning it formed a perfect dead end. So the text makes crystal clear. God literally told his people, do a U-turn, go back to from where you just were and go backwards. And where he led them was actually a dead end. Because if the people were to travel north, they would run into a very formidable uh, Egyptian military fortress. That's not a good place to go. If they were to head south, they would head into the very vast and very dangerous Egyptian desert called Mizraim. If they were to head west, well, that would take them back to the very place that they just were in Goshen, which is in Egypt. Now, if they were to go east, well, they're going to have to learn how to swim or learn how to walk on water because east, what's in front of them is the Red Sea. So the first word that I want us to remember from Exodus 14 is the word reflect. See, where the Israelites were led was not like an accident. It wasn't the result of a wrong turn or some GPS miscalculation. God had literally led them to a dead end for one reason and one reason alone, that He would be glorified. If you look at verse 4, I have planned this. This is all part of my plan in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. Now, I know in a lot of me sharing on Sunday mornings, I typically mention things that I've written down in my journal. And for me, journaling has caused me to be an incredibly, trying to be an incredibly reflective person, thinking about the questions I have, things that I'm thinking about or concerns I have. 
But one of the things that journaling has afforded me the opportunity to do is to write down questions like, what might God be doing right now? Like in this place that I'm in, in this season that I'm in, because it seems like a dead end, God, what might you be doing in this moment in my life? Because clearly being in a dead end is never easy. Whether it's a personal dead end, whether it's a relational dead end, whether it's a professional dead end, whether it's a financial dead end. But when we find ourselves in perceived dead ends, we have to take time to simply reflect on, God, what are you doing in this moment, in this season? What are you doing right now? Because if we don't take time to actually reflect on what God is up to, will fall prey to just complaining and just blaming God or maybe others or maybe both about the dead end that we're in. And when we're complaining and blaming, we'll completely miss altogether what God is actually seeking to accomplish in our lives to where He's led us to that point. And the beauty of reflecting on the work uh, that God is doing, the work that God has for you in that moment, in that place, is when we reflect long enough, we will always be led back to this place that I have you here, this dead end, this perceived dead end that they were in, the perceived dead end that we're in. I'm going to display who I am. I'm going to display what I'm like. I'm going to display what I can do so that you will know who God is and what God is like. Again, dead ends, they are not easy. But failing to reflect on what God might be doing will inevitably lead to the second word I want us to remember from Exodus 14, and it's this. It's the word repent. Now, if you're not familiar with that word repent, repent just simply means it's a change of mind and it's a change of direction. So as we are going to continue in the story, God had already told Moses and the people, hey, I'm doing something here with Pharaoh. I'm wanting him to think a certain way that you are trapped. And so as we go on in the story, what God wanted to actually happen, actually happened. It says in Exodus 14, verse 6, and then 8 and 9, Pharaoh harnessed his chariot, called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel. Verse 9, the Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers, and all of his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Phiharoth across from Baal Zephon. Now, before we look at Israel's response uh, about being chased down by the most powerful army on the planet, I want to remind you about how Israel actually left Egypt, meaning the attitude that they left Egypt in. It says in Exodus 14.8, the king of Egypt chased after the people of Israel who had left with fists raised in defiance. It's amazing to me that when there are dead ends in our lives and there's no reflecting on, God, what are you doing in this season, in this story, in this situation, when we don't reflect on the dead ends that we find ourselves in, how it will take an incredibly confident people and turn them into a people that are filled with fear. The story goes on in Exodus 14, verse 10, says this. This is Israel's response. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and they panicked. 
when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. And they cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you that this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better for us to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Now, the people's response to God, the people's response to to Moses here in Exodus 13 might be the biggest I told you so in human history. Their response was, we told you this was going to happen. We knew it all along. We knew that we would find ourselves in this situation. We told you this would happen. See, fear in our lives, panic in our lives has this multifaceted effect. One, it causes us to believe things about God that are just not true. Why did you bring us out here to die? Well, they had completely forgotten that God had promised them that he was delivering them from Egypt into the promised land. Fear not only causes us and them to believe things about God that are just not true, but it also, fear has a way to lead us to settle for less than what God's best is actually for us. Do you notice one of the aspects of the response? They said, let us be slaves in Egypt. See, the people of Israel preferred to be safe in what was known, which was slavery, rather than be free and dependent upon God for his provision and his protection. I've been really wrestling with that statement. We just let us be slaves Just let us be slaves in Egypt. Why would anyone ever choose bondage over living free? Like, why would anyone in their right mind say, I would rather be a slave than actually live my life in complete freedom? I think the people of God in Exodus 14 help us answer that question really with one word, and it's just vision. When one takes their eyes off of God and places their eyes on the dead end or the impending crisis like an army... Well, familiar chains feel much better than just fear of the unknown, fear of what could happen, what might actually happen. And I can all but guarantee you that when you take your eyes off of God and focus on the situation or the circumstance that you are in, there will always be fear, there will always be panic. Now, imagine if you're Moses, you're standing before a huge mass of people. What would you tell these people? They're complaining to God, they're complaining to you, they're now blaming you that this is your fault, that they're in this predicament. What would you tell them? What would be your counsel, your encouragement to them? Because I love Moses' response to the people in midst of them in fear mode, panic mode, blaming and complaining. He says in verse 13, Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, I want you to catch this. When Moses says, don't be afraid, This is what's called a negative imperative. When Moses tells the people, do not be afraid, he was not seeking to comfort them. He was seeking to correct them. In this moment, Moses is not trying to give like some pep talk like, hey, come on, guys, it's going to be okay. I know scary army is coming our way, but it's really going to be okay. I think God's going to do something here. I'm not sure what, but Don't be afraid. God's got us. God's got this. He's not trying to give them a pep talk. In this moment, Moses is actually rebuking the people for the fear that they have. What Moses is telling the people, in light of everything that you have seen God do, how is it possible 
that you could have any fear right now. You see, where there's fear and panic, there's just someone who's simply forgotten who God is and what God is like and all that God has done and all that God has promised to do. So when Moses says, do not be afraid, that is a call to repentance, both for them and for us as well. The Israelites, their eyes, they were fixated on Pharaoh. They were fixated on his army that was coming. And because of that, that's where their eyes were looking. They were filled with panic and fear. So Moses says, you need to repent of the fear that you have. If there's fear in our lives right now, again, financial fear, relational fear, professional fear. Maybe it's just fear of, you don't even know what it is, but you're just walking with and living with fear. The message to them is the same message to us. You need to repent of that fear. We need to stop looking at what we fear and actually begin reflecting upon, no, this is who God is, this is what God is like, and this is what God is doing. So Moses does not just call for them to repent, he now also invites them to do something in light of who God is and what God will do. This is the third word I want you to remember, and it's the word rest. So we've looked at the idea of reflecting, we've looked at repenting, and the third word I want us to catch in Exodus 14 is rest. Verse 13 and 14, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. See, our ability to rest has nothing to do with the situation or the circumstance that we're in. And it has everything to do with God's relentless commitment to do what would bring Him the most glory. So whatever the perceived dead end or the impending crisis, we're actually able to rest even in the face of that because of the amazing truth is that God will always be God. God will always be perfect in all that He does. All that He does is rooted in love for you, for me, all that God does is perfect, is unconditional in His love. And there is nothing or no one as powerful as God. So instead of always trying to earn or perform for God, we can simply just rest in His perfection, rest in His love. Instead of trying to do everything in our own strength and our own power to fix this and make this happen and make this work, we can just simply rest in His strength and rest in His promise. Instead of stressing over outcomes of, well, how might this happen and what's going to happen here? We can actually just rest in His promise. Now, telling a community of people who are in a geographical dead end with an angry and very well-armed army pursuing them to rest seems at best counterintuitive. But this is the beauty of Moses' message to the people of God. You can rest because God is God and God will always be God. And when we get to the posture of rest, well, then we're positioned for the fourth word I think Exodus 14 teaches us, and it's simply this, respond. When we've reflected, 
we've repented where we've needed to, and we're resting in who God is, well, now we're positioned well to respond to what God has invited us and called us to do. Exodus 14, verse 15 and 16, this is what God tells Moses and the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Now, you might be familiar with this story, but imagine if you were to hear that for the very first time. I'm sorry, did you just say divide the water? Imagine what you would have been thinking, hearing, and processing when God says, divide the water. I don't know if God's ever asked you to do something insane or crazy, and you're like, God, that just makes no sense. How is that possibly going to work? Well, it would be easy for us to see divide the water as some crazy request from God to Moses, but I'm actually convinced that Moses would not have seen this as an insane request. I don't think Moses would have seen this as some like crazy thing that God was asking him to do for one reason alone, because prior obedience resulted in Moses seeing the glory of God. Prior obedience to what God had told Moses to do resulted in Moses getting to see God be God. Every step of obedience Moses took while he was in Egypt, he was able to see God be God. He was able to see his power over everything in land, on sea, in sea, and in the sky. So with this invitation to respond, God reminded Moses and the people one more time, this isn't just about you. This is about I'm trying to display my glory. It says in verse 17 and 18, my great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. See, Moses knew that God was and is always committed to being God, who he is, that he is committed to making his glory, his name, his power known to all people. So if God tells Moses to divide the waters, why on earth would Moses think that God could not or would not do that through him? I think one of the things that prevents us from moving, moving forward and doing all that God wants us to do is that we want to see the results of the first step before we actually take the first step. In other words, we want results before we respond. But Moses was fully confident in the steps that he had already taken in times past that he got to see God be God. But I think what holds us back from responding to God is we just want to know how it's going to work out before we actually take a step in that direction. Moses did not let what he could not see, a path forward, prevent him from doing the one thing he knew God called him to do and what he knew God would do. So it says in Exodus 14, verse 21 and 2, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord, the Lord opened a path through the water with a strong east wind, and the wind blew all night, turning the seabed into dry land, so the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. I love how the Bible just speaks of this miracle so simply. This is what happened. God divided the water, they walked through on dry ground, and on the left and on the right were walls of water, and they just walked through. The Lord opened up a path for them. See, the reality is that there was a path there 
the whole time. There was a path there the whole time, but Moses and the people of God could not see it until they took their first step. If um, you're familiar with the Psalms, uh, the psalmists talk a lot about the Exodus, and they talk specifically a lot about the miracle of the Red Sea. And in Psalm 77, it says this, When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. But verse 19, your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along the road like a flock of sheep and Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. I love verse 19. Your road it was right through the sea. It was a pathway that no one knew was there, but God knew it was there. Now, for years and years and years growing up in church, I would always maybe hear this story of the Red Sea, and at some point, the individual sharing the message would always finish with the question, hey, what is your Red Sea that God wants to part for you today? Or I'd hear the question that would say, hey, who is your Pharaoh? Hey, what is that army that is just chasing you down right now that God wants to deliver you from and he wants you to trust him for? Those are, I guess, interesting questions, but I'm not sure those are the questions we should be asking ourselves because the reality is this. If you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, you're already living on the other side of the Red Sea. The fact of the matter is that whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whether it's a perceived dead end or an impending crisis, we must remember that we are not awaiting God's deliverance because the deliverance has actually already come in Christ. So if you're a Christian, then your Egypt is already behind you and you have already crossed through the Red Sea. So the question is not, how do I get to the other side of this mess? How do I get to the other side of this dead end? How do I get to the other side of this crisis? But the question is, how shall I now live seeing that Jesus has already rescued me and already delivered me? What Exodus 14 reminds me of, and hopefully all of us today, is that we must be people who simply reflect on all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That we would be men and women who would repent when we are believing things about God that are just not true, that are not consistent with who He is and His character, that we would be men and women who would just rest in what Christ has done, in His finished work, that we would not be men and women who are just striving and trying to earn and perform, but that we would just rest in the work that Christ has done for us and that we would be men and women who would respond in obedience to do anything and everything that God has invited us to do because He wants to display His glory. And by the way, one of the common things that God has invited all of us to respond in Him to do is to help all people walk with God. There's so many men and women in our lives who just don't know who God is, they don't know what God is like, and they're also believing things about God that are not true. And we have the opportunity to help the men and women, the students, the kids in our lives catch a glimpse of what God is like and what we are like. If you're a Christian, you've already, you've exited Egypt, you're already on the other side of the Red Sea, 
our questions are, God, how do I live my life in light of the deliverance that you have given me? Well, we reflect, we repent, we rest, and we respond. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you haven't yet made that decision to begin a relationship with God, you're still in Egypt. You're still on the other side of the Red Sea. And my encouragement, my invitation for you is the very same thing. Reflect on who God is. He desires to know you because He loves you. And He created you to know Him. But He's also called you to repent of trying to do life apart from Him, to repent of the sins that separated us from Him. And He's invited you to rest, to rest in who He is and all that He has for you. And He's invited you to respond to living out the mission and the purpose of your life that He has for you. Reflect, repent, rest, and respond.